Welcome back. As we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we are now entering our fourth week, um, and we are looking at um, the Gospel of Matthew and understanding how Matthew presents Jesus's earthly ministry, particularly through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. So our goal is to kind of look at the Sermon on the Mount as a um, we might think of it as an encapsulated form of the gospel and the approach of storytelling um, to the gospel that, that Matthew is taking and telling his account of these events. So we're going to be continuing today with our study of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly looking at Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19 through verse 34. Um, and so we're going to, before we get to those verses, we want to look back just briefly at some of the material we've covered to refresh us on the important points that we need to keep in mind as we look through how Matthew presents this particular teaching of Jesus in these coming verses. So one of the things that we've emphasized throughout all of the weeks is the Matthean contrast, as, as we've kind of labeled it here. Um, and that is the contrast that shows up in some form or another um, throughout each of the sections of the Sermon on the Mount as, as um, Jesus teaches it and then also as Matthew presents it. And essentially the Matthean contrast is that the logic that applies to this world that we're in falls apart whenever we try to apply that same logic to the world to come. Um, and that the phrase that Matthew often uses in that uh, is to refer to it as the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Um, so the kingdom of heaven, the logic of this world fails to make sense when it's applied to the kingdom of heaven. And then the flip side of that coin, the inverse logic of that same statement is that the logic of the kingdom of heaven is also incomprehensible whenever it's judged by this worldly criteria. So whenever we attempt to judge the things of the kingdom of heaven by any type of standard that makes sense in this world, it also becomes incomprehensible. And so essentially what we find in the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly in the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, is this uh, kind of divide that exists between the this worldly and the otherworldly, uh, between this present kingdom that we are taking part of, this earthly realm, and the kingdom of heaven um, that, that we are to take part of um, within uh, our participation in Christ. And so that kingdom of heaven has already begun to invade our present realm, and that's where the teachings of um, Jesus and the Matthean community begin to make sense, is within that contrast of how do we live as kingdom, as members and citizens of this kingdom, while we are still here in this earthly context. And so that's the Matthean contrast that comes out in all of these different sections that, that we've looked at so far. <clears throat> as a brief review, those sections we've covered um, are the Beatitudes, a critique of the law and how it's practiced. Um, the critique of spiritual practices and instruction on spiritual practices. And then today we will look at wealth and worship. So we can look at each of these sections and then actually see how the Matthean contrast comes across in them. So in the Beatitudes, we get the contrast um, that is presented in the terms of um, those who need in this present realm, in this present world, will eventually become those who have in the kingdom of heaven. And so we have the example of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, and so we have that imagery of the hunger and thirsting, the current hunger and thirsting that they have. Um, and then in the kingdom, it, that hunger and thirsting will be fulfilled. Um, so we have this, the, the, the contrast of those who are in need something and eventually becoming those who have in the kingdom. And that reflects our Matthean contrast of that the things that don't make sense in this present world eventually become fulfilled and become um, things that do make sense in the kingdom of heaven. We then have the, the critique of the law. In particular, it's a critique of the practice of the law. And so Jesus introduces this by saying, um, you have heard it said, and then introduces some principle from the law, uh, from the Jewish law itself, or from kind of a general 
um, we might say common sense type of law. Um, and then he contrasts that with not just what the law says, but then actually what the law means or what it is that the law was actually trying to get humanity to do. Um, and so the example that, that we've, uh, one of the examples we looked at is murder, uh, that the law specifically says you should not murder. But as we discussed before, that, that actually the law has an intention, not just that you refrain from murdering anybody, it actually has the intention that you would um, consider your relationship with, with others and that you would have healthy and wholesome relationships with others and that you would recognize damaging actions and damaging um, mindsets that you have towards others. So the law actually isn't only concerned with whether or not you murder, the law is actually concerned with whether or not you hate somebody else as well. Um, and then we have spiritual practices. This is kind of the hypocrite passage that, that we talked about last week. Um, and that is that Jesus provides the contrast here of don't please people by the things that you do, by your religious or spiritual practices, but instead aim to please God. And so the way that that essentially works out in each of those instructions is don't do these things publicly, but instead try to do them privately. Um, try to do them in a way that it's revealed that clearly your intention and your focus is only on a concern for God um, and not on a concern for reaping any type of physical, this worldly reward because that reward will fail or that reward will, um, you'll receive it here. And then in the kingdom of heaven, that reward will fail because uh, again, what makes sense in this world doesn't transfer over into the kingdom of heaven. And so we pick up then with uh, this passage on wealth and worship. Um, and I've used worship here broadly, um, kind of for the alliteration, uh, which I realize is cheating, uh, but wealth and worship, uh, essentially the idea of wealth and service. How are we, how are we reflecting what things we worship and what things we serve with the wealth that we have and how we're using our, our physical possessions. So we're going to look at this in two major sections um, as we go through the coming verses. The first is Matthew 6, uh, verses 19 through 24. And so I want us to begin just by um, reading through these verses together, and then we'll pause and kind of um, go back and reflect on them a little bit. So here, here are our verses all together, uh, Matthew 16, verse 19 through 24. And this is the New Living Translation. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where the thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the darkness that you think uh, you have is actually, if the light that you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So there's kind of three basic um, Methian contrasts that emerge here. The first is don't store up treasures on earth, but instead store up treasures in heaven. So that's the direct contrast that we've been presenting all along, a direct contrast between heaven and earth. Uh, the second is uh, a little um, less clear as far as how it fits into that that contrast of the earth versus heavenly, but the, the contrast itself is still there. And that is the contrast of how an unhealthy eye darkens the whole body. So we'll talk about how the eye functions in the ancient mind and what this actually means here in just a minute. But essentially we can start with the idea here that a the, the, the healthy function of the eye 
um, involves light and the production of light and then filling the body with light. And so we have this contrast between what is considered the healthy function of the eye and the contrast of what is the unhealthy eye that actually leads to the whole body, the whole person being darkened. And instead of giving light, it actually produces darkness. So we have that contrast of what it's supposed to do versus what it does. Um, and then we have the, the contrast between the two types of masters that are served, that one cannot serve both God and money, God and mammon, um, as we'll talk about that in just a moment. And so we kind of see that the mammon, the physical um, the physical possessions begins to comes to represent the physicalness, the physicality of our present life versus um, the serving of God, which points us towards service in the kingdom of heaven. So those are kind of the three subsections of this um, first passage that we're going to talk about. So in verse 19, um, notice the, the treasures that are stored up. I've noted that this contrast is the sharpest and clearest right here that don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. So we have the direct contrast between earth here and then in verse 20, the contrast of in heaven. Uh, but note what the corrupting influences are here on earth. Um, they are moth, moths, they are rust, they are thieves. Um, they are all three physical elements that destroy physical things. Um, so the physicality of verse 19 is just completely filled up here, right? It's, it's don't store up these physical things because physical threats, pro, pro, um, physical threats prove treacherous and dangerous and corruptive to physical possessions. So if you're going to focus on physical possessions, then in the long term, you're actually not going to have anything because the implication of this is, is that physical possessions end up being temporary. Um, no matter what you have here on earth, um, even if we, you know, if we don't take into account the, the, the idea of heaven and, and, and treasures in heaven and all of that, if we were to just to say that humans were immortal and you could live forever, anything that you possessed and had on earth would come to an end because of these forces, because of, of insects and corruption and the breaking down of things and deterioration and rust and people stealing it and people destroying it. So no matter what you have on earth, it is by nature temporary, physical, physically temporary, because it will in some way break down and, and lose its current form. So the idea here is to not worry about storing up physical things because physical things are corruptible and they are temporary. But in contrast to that, we're encouraged in verse 20 then to instead focus on storing up our treasures in heaven. And note that what is said about treasures in heaven. Treasures in, treasures in heaven um, cannot be destroyed by moths and rust, and thieves cannot break in and steal your treasures in heaven. So we have this direct contrast between the things that are corruptible and temporary versus the things that are stored up for us in heaven that now become permanent and, and um, indestructible is not the, the right word, but incorruptible at least. Uh, so they, they can't be attacked by these physical elements. The physical things that can destroy your physical treasures have no power to destroy the things that are in heaven. So we get that very sharp contrast between the logic of this world and the things that corrupt in this world don't hold that same power in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and then we get the, the ending here that whatever, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Um, so note that last week we, we got a reference in a passage to, in the previous passage to 
the rewards and doing certain things so that you don't please people, but instead so that you please God, so that you would receive your reward from God. And that, I think, can pose some difficulty for us as modern readers um, in thinking about kind of ulterior, ulterior, um, ulterior motives for why we're doing the, the good things that we're doing. Are we doing the good things that we're doing because we want to be rewarded for them? And then if we are doing them because we want to be rewarded for them, then that feels like we're kind of being deceptive and dishonest about the good things that we're doing to begin with. Um, and so we can think about that um, as we kind of talked about in a, in a discussion last week. Um, we can talk about those rewards in a way that recognizes the difference that exists between physical rewards and the heavenly rewards, just as we see here with the treasures. Um, and so in verse 21, we kind of pick up on some of that, uh, the wording here that could again make us uncomfortable if we're thinking about um, only doing things for the reward, only doing things for the treasure. Uh, but we get in verse 21 that wherever your treasure is, there also lies the desires of your heart. Um, and so that those treasures, um, the word here, uh, it, I have children, so when I hear the word treasures, I think of pirates, and I think of, you know, chests of gold and all of those things. Um, what it, The sense here is, is more the idea of just stockpiling, um, you know, the storing up of things. So wherever you are storing up things, um, that's where the desires of your heart are, that the, those reflect um, where the true intentions of your being and your heart are and your mindset um, is, because for you to have accumulated that wealth, for you have for you to have accumulated that stockpile of whatever it is and whatever form it takes, for you to have spent the time, the effort to to do that, means that there's some type of motivation behind it, and it, and it's revealing what it is that takes place within your heart, and it shows you where those true energies and those true efforts lie. Um, so Matthew, I don't want to soften. The critique that Matthew gives here, because it's very easy, and we'll get um, later into this lesson of asking the question, how does this apply to wealth, and is there a positive use for wealth in the kingdom? Um, but at this stage, I don't want us to lose the sharpness of this critique that, that Matthew is leveling here and um, that comes through in Jesus's um, teaching um, because of the way that, that it really puts the emphasis on that wherever you're putting your energies and efforts, that shows your true heart. And that lies as a very sharp distinction here. Uh, Matthew doesn't accompany it, accompany it with any type of caveat or any type of softening. Neither does Jesus offer any type of softening here as well. So we really need to kind of sit and dwell with the difficulty of what it means that wherever we're putting our efforts, whether that's in physical things as the passage here is about, whether that's in intellectual pursuits, whether that's in you know political pursuits or, or what other, other things that we're occupying our time with, um, how is that revealing what the intention of our hearts um, are? And so I want us to, to just think about this question. I'm going to pose it, and then um, this is just something that you can think about. But think a little bit about what these heavenly treasures would actually be, because this whole text here presented by Jesus is rather ab abstract. We get very tangible um, things that can destroy our earthly treasures. And then from those, we can maybe deduce like what type of things Jesus has in mind. Um, if moths are eating them, then it's perhaps fine, wealthy clothing. Um, if thieves are breaking and stealing them, then there's some type of physical wealth, physical treasure that they can get to. Um, but when we turn to think about storing up treasures in heaven, what would that actually mean? What would be the treasures in heaven that we would store up? How would we, first, how would we 
obtain those treasures if we're obtaining them in some way? And then how would we store them up and how would we prepare them for the kingdom instead of preparing them or, or trying to save them for um, present pursuits? So that's a question that I want to pose to you for you to think about on your own and kind of reflect on how that, um, what, the, what those heavenly treasures would be um, for us as, as we go through this passage. So then uh, the second is that we looked at um, not storing up our heavenly treasures. And then in verse 22, we get this kind of um, what strikes us as strange, um, this short passage on the eye and how the eye interacts here. Uh, so the passage is that your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. So to pause just briefly, um, the ancient view of the eye, as at least in the common kind of, um, you know, the common folk view of the eye was that the, we as moderns think of the eye scientifically as a lens that light passes through. And you've all seen the diagram in your eye doctor that it passes through and it focuses on the back of your eye and your brain interprets the light that is coming into your eye. In the ancient world, um, a common view of the eye and vision was actually the exact opposite. And that is that, that the world we live in is actually complete darkness, but that out of our eyes shine light. And so that wherever we look, we can see what we're looking at only because our light, or only because our eyes are shining out the light that makes it visible for us to see them. Um, so in that way, the, the opening line of this phrase makes a lot of sense to an ancient audience, that your eye is like a lamp. Um, so it, it's it's picking up on this idea that the eye actually sends out the light that you, that you see. Um, where it gets a little bit inverted, here with Matthew uh, in Matthew is that the eye is a lamp that looks out, but it, the eye is the lamp that also then becomes the light of the body. Um, and so it kind of becomes an inward focusing thing as well, that the eye is feeling, the eye is um, exuding the light that is inside, outside. And so for there to be light outside, there has to be light inside that is filling the body as well. And so we get the, that reflection of what it means then for there to be a healthy eye and an unhealthy eye. That's the language of the New Living Translation here. It's followed by a lot of English translations because it, it communicates in the simplest form um, to a modern audience what, what is being described here. Um, but the actual word here is not healthy. The actual word here is, is something along the lines of a singular um, when your eye is singularly focused, when your eye is one, when it's collectively working integrated and integral to your body, then in that sense, when, you're, when your eye is doing what it's supposed to do in line with your body, then the whole body ends up filled with light. But then we get a contrast with that in verse 23, that when your eye is unhealthy, and again, we have here a, a, a kind of deceptive English translation because it's actually not unhealthy, it's actually evil. But when your eye is evil, your whole body becomes filled with darkness. And I think that that there's first, let me say, there's a lot of debate about um, all of this and, and what exactly Matthew's picking up on in the ancient world, what knowledge his audience would have, what knowledge a common public audience would have if they were reading this. Um, so there's a lot of different um, theories on how exactly this functions and what it means. But one of the things that's very common in the ancient world, um, and we, we use the phrase in English as well to talk about the evil eye, that somebody has given you the evil eye. 
Um, when we say it in English, we basically just means like somebody's giving you a dirty look or somebody is kind of envious of the things that you have. Um, and in the ancient world, that envious part was a really big function of the evil eye and the corrupting influence of the evil eye. So you had an evil eye for somebody else um, when you were envious of something that they had and you gave them a look that projected. Remember, we just talked about that the eye projects things in the ancient mindset. So when you looked jealously at somebody, your eye was actually projecting evil, jealous thoughts towards them through the, through the kind of beams that come out of your eye. Um, and so it was believed by a lot of people, especially for young children, um, that young children were very sensitive and very corruptible to these type of, of influences. So people in the ancient world took a lot of extra steps to protect babies and young newborn children, especially, but young children um, up until uh, probably about 10 or 11 years old. Um, because they were seen to be kind of so malleable and absorbent that if somebody cast a little jealous, evil eye towards them, um, there's actually passages that talk about um, parents themselves looking at their children and their, their children essentially being too cute um, for their own good. And so you look at your child and, the, and there's like this jealous thought passes through your mind about how cute that baby is and why do they get to be so cute or something like that. And so without you even meaning to do it, a jealous thought has crossed your mind. It's shot out of the beams of your eyes and it's corrupted the body of the person who you were looking at. So what does all of that have to do with this passage? In verse 23, when the Matthew and Jesus here say, but when your eye is unhealthy, when your eye is evil, your whole body is filled with darkness. So whenever your eye Whenever you've given into this kind of jealous type of mindset, this covetous mindset, then that's when it begins to corrupt the internal light of the body and it begins to create a darkness. And again, Matthew is flipping the idea. In the ancient world, the evil eye was something that shot outwards and corrupted other people. Matthew is saying, actually, this evil, if you have an evil eye, it actually ends up reflecting back into you and it ends up corrupting your own light as well. It corrupts the, the light within your body and it actually fills the whole body with darkness. Um, so the, the, it poses the question of why the eye, right, in this passage at all, because in the previous passage, Jesus used the heart, which is a much more understandable analogy that where your, um, where your wealth lies, where your treasures lies, that's where your heart lies also. So it makes, it would make more sense to continue with the heart analogy. Um, but I think the reason that Matthew switches to, or I'm sorry, the, the reason that Jesus switches to the eye here and discusses the eye is because of that um, connection between covetousness and envy. And it fits in perfectly with this example of what we're looking at right now, which is how you store up wealth, how you store up treasure for yourself um, in heaven. So that's that's the essentially why we get the eye that enters the picture here. And then we get our very last section that looks in this, this subsection of this part that then um, wraps up and communicates how these these idea, this idea of wealth and serving God goes together. Um, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters for you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So there's only two things. This is, um, I think, in a lot of ways, rather self-explanatory, this passage. Um, we have to keep in mind here, and this will become especially clear in the passage that we're about to look at, that the, the, 
things that Jesus is saying here are given as proverbs. They're meant to be. And when proverbs are given, proverbs demonstrate a general principle that applies kind of generally and in broad strokes to life. It's not meant to be absolutely true. It's not foolproof that other things never happen. Um, so in this instance, in verse 24, um, A, yes, it's possible for a slave to serve two masters. It's possible for a person to serve, serve two masters or to be engaged in two jobs or things like that. Um, the point is that, that Jesus wants to make here is that in general, you can't effectively serve two masters well. You end up you end up favoring one over the other. And because you favor one, you end up hating the other because they take you away from the work you, you enjoy and you end up loving the other. So that's kind of the general principle. Um, the serve here is the idea, it plays off of the, the idea of servitude and slavery, um, but it, it, it here it's an intentional almost subjugation, a self-subjugation to something or a submission to something. Um, in these passages, it's about somebody choosing which of the two masters they're going to serve, not being forcefully enslaved to either of them. Um, so the whole point of this is not that money has captured you and it's impossible for you to get out of its control as a slave, uh, the idea here is that you are choosing by your accumulation of wealth and resources and, and physical um, possessions, you are choosing which of these two masters you serve, and you can't serve both of them. So you have to choose which of those you will serve. Um, and then the New Living Translation tra translates the end of this here as you can't, um, you cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Um, the money phrase here translates the Aramaic uh, mammon, which if you've read any older translations, especially King James Version, um, that's probably the way that you've memorized this verse. Um, and mammon just has a, a broad sense of being not just money, um, not just wealth, but kind of physical possessions in general, the things that you accumulate and collect around you. Um, so it plays into that kind of broad sense of what wealth is and what physical possessions um, are in this world as well. So let's look then at Matthew 6, verse 25 through 35. And so we, the pr previous um, passage was labeled um, wealth and worship or wealth and service. Uh, this one we could label wealth and worry. Uh, this passage focuses a lot on what worry accomplishes, or more specifically, what worrying does not accomplish, and again, maintains that contrast between the physical and the heavenly. We're going to move a little bit quicker be between these verses. These are 10 verses here, and we're not going to break them up and go as carefully through them as we did with the previous um, verses, because in many ways, the, the logic of this is um, self-explanatory, and it's also poetic language. So I think that it's the reason why this is one of the one of the favorite passages in in the Gospels is because it's poetic. It speaks to us poetically and creatively about what it means for us to um, not to worry, and then also to rely on God for our sustenance and our our uh, needs that we have. So, let me read the passage, and then we'll go back and make a few comments, and then close with just one or two um, questions that you can think about. So Matthew six. Verse 25, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store foods in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. 
They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wild flowers that are here today and then thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have such little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all of your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. So let's look back at just a few key points um, to pick up on this that kind of fall in line with the patterns that we've been identifying. Um, the first is that note the features that Matthew brings up about the worries that accompany everyday life. They are food, drink, and clothes. And essentially this could, you could say that this sums up the life of, of a person. Uh, if we have food and we have clothing to protect us from the elements, to keep us warm, um, then that's essentially all that is absolutely necessary for us to live. If you have food, drink, and clothes, then you could, um, in theory, survive, right? So this is about the physical survival of humanity. Why are you worried about the things that you need to physically survive? Um, and then it, Matthew, uh, Jesus gives us this, this um, explanation in Matthew here of that isn't life more than food and isn't your body more than clothing? Um, aren't these things that you're worried about just a piece of what's required to actually have life? So notice the, the, the idea here of having life that isn't, aren't those things just a portion of it that you could actually have food, have drink, have clothes, and you could be a living being, but you can actually not have life. But instead, aren't there more to that than just worrying about your food and worrying about how you're going to close your, clothe yourself? Um, and then we get these really um, poetic, as I mentioned, um, imagery, both in the birds uh, and also then in the flowers of the field um, in the following verses as well. And the basic idea here is kind of a, a creation theology of if we look out at the natural world around us, who these things don't worry about how they're going to provide for themselves. They don't store up extra food. They don't store up extra drink. They don't worry about whether they look appropriate or not. Um, they, they simply exist. They simply trust that the things they need today are going to be provided today and the things that they will need tomorrow are going to be provided tomorrow. And so essentially this Jesus gives us this really um, romantic imagery about how the birds and the, and the flowers exist naturally without worry to challenge us then to think about how we exist and to think about how our worry is accomplishing um, anything if it is. Um, and in verse 27, we get the answer to that question. Um, the, verse 27 is interesting because it takes a really practical shift. Um, everything to the uh, at verse 26 is kind of poetic and theoretical, philosophical even. Uh, and verse 27 takes a really practical shift and just says, um, you know, if the birds don't worry, that's great. Look at them. They're a good example. But then verse 27 says, actually, what, what would you accomplish? If you want to talk about the practical aspects of it, what does worry actually accomplish for you? It doesn't accomplish anything. In verse 28, if you worry about clothing and clothing your body and where you're going to get the clothes, has worry itself actually produced any of that for you? Has it actually given you clothes? Does it actually produce and give you food and drink? Uh, the answer is no. 
But if we look at the flowers of the field, they don't worry. And look at how much God has provided for them. Look at how much God has given to them. Um, so we get a really practical aspect in, in verse 27 and 28 on uh, posing the kind of opposite side of the trust um, idea. And that is to think about the practical aspect of what does worry actually accomplish, if anything. Um, and then in verse 20 and uh, verse 30, we get an emphasis on, again, that the, even though the birds and the flowers are given as um, examples that we are to look at and replicate in some ways, we also have to recognize that they still belong to this physical world. So go all the way back to the beginning of this lesson. What were the physical things? What happens to physical things? We said that the physical things are corruptible and that they are temporary so even the wildflowers that we're to look at and draw inspiration from, we also have to recognize that they are only part of this physical world. And so what happens to them? They are thrown into the fire tomorrow. Um, so they are corrupted by fire and they are temporary in that they are actually gone. Um, and so Jesus uses that contrast to then ask if the things that are corruptible and the things that are temporary are treated in such a distinct and almost um, exalted manner by God, how much more so will he provide for us who are members of the kingdom of heaven and participating in eternal existence with him? Uh, note in verse 31, um, don't worry about these things and the questions that are asked, repeat the same um, examples from above. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Um, and the people who ask these questions are the unbelievers. The, the Greek here is actually the, what we often translate in English as the Gentiles. Um, but the idea is simply that it's it's those people who don't belong to the kingdom. It's those people who aren't participating in the kingdom. Those people who are worried about this worldly things are the people who worry about this worldly things. The people who are focused on this world worry about what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? But instead, if we follow the Methian contrast, if we are members of the kingdom of heaven, then we worry about kingdom issues. And that's exactly what verse 33 tells us, that if we seek the kingdom above everything else, we live righteously, then God will give us everything that we need, um, presumably physically for this life to exist, but that's not guaranteed. Um, but recognizing that the physical and the, the, um, the kingdom are, are distinct, that we have um, the, the assurance that in the kingdom, at least, we will have everything we need. Um, and the physical aspect, the, um, there's, there's hints that, that, uh, that God provides that in every situation. But again, we talked about the proverbial nature of this instruction, that um, we can think of plenty of examples in our own life from the birds um, to the flowers of the field that even in this passage are admitted are thrown into the fire. So they obviously don't have everything they need provided for them all the time. Um, and the same is true for um, faithful servants of God, that there are numerous examples in scripture. There are numerous examples throughout Christian um, existence, Christian history, and throughout just our own lives as well, um, where we have seen that the physical side of existence doesn't always work out perfectly for those who are faithful to the call of the kingdom. And it's not supposed to. Uh, that's what Matthew is drawing our attention to here, is that despite whatever happens in the physical realm, we as members of the kingdom know that God will provide ultimately everything we need as members of that kingdom. Um, and so we end with that exhortation in verse 34. So don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's troubles are enough worries, uh, enough trouble for today. So I want to pose just a quick question for you to think about um, as you reflect on this, these passages. And that is, 
Um, how does this section relate to the Lord's Prayer? So we mentioned previously that we, in our study, um, skipped over doing an in-depth study of the Lord's Prayer. But I want you to look back on it in your own time and reread through it and think about how does this instruction about worrying about your daily needs today and your needs of the future, how does that relate to the call um, to be a member of the kingdom? And then how is that reflected in um, this section here in Matthew 6 as well? Um, and then one other example, one other question I want you to think about is that we looked at critiques of the law and practice of the law, um, but how does how does Jesus present a what what we might call a community rule? How does Jesus present a pattern for living and a way of living without recreating that law? Um, how does Jesus avoid falling into kind of the same traps that he's le he's leveled against interpretations of the law before him? How is he able to tell his community how to live and how to participate with each other without falling into those same um, pitfalls of representing a law uh, for people to follow? So that's our look at this section on Matthew that looks specifically at wealth and how we are to live in, um, in relationship to the wealth of this world, the possessions of this world as members of the kingdom who are already members of the kingdom and living fully in the kingdom, yet still here um, living in this physical existence as well. So I, I hope as you go throughout the week that you'll think about those contrasts that exist between where you are putting your energies, where you are putting your efforts, and what what that reveals about your own um, your your own interests, your own heart, your own passions, and where that's illustrating how you are living either for the kingdom um, or for a, an interest that is oriented more towards this world as well. I hope that's reflective for you this week, and I hope you can have um, spend a little bit of time asking yourself those those questions in conversation with the word. Hi, St. Luke's. I'm Leighton Denmark, and I'm here on Your Week with St. Luke's, and I'm with the pastors, and I'm, um, they're going to ask me some questions today, so let's see how this goes. And I'm, um, I guess my first question would be, <laughs> uh, you are about to graduate. What are your plans uh, leaving home for the first time, leaving St. Luke's, too? Yeah, um, so I'm going to be attending a four-year university in Nashville called Belmont University. Uh, there's a couple other kids who've gone through the church who go there right now, so there's a little connection there. Um, it's actually, it's a Christian university, um, and the president is actually Nymeth's, uh pastor, Dr. Greg Jones. He has worked actually a lot with our current bishop, Ken Carter, so that's pretty cool. Um, studying commercial music there, um, so it's kind of like business. I'm not writing jingles for, um, um, for the O'Reilly commercial or anything like that, so... Um, more business behind the scenes, but um, uh, I really look forward to the opportunity to mix kind of uh, the Christian industry and the music um, and then just how the business of all that and how that all comes together. So I'm pretty excited for that. So that's that's the next four. Hopefully that continues to work out in the way that God wants it to. So, yeah. Yeah, you talked a little bit with your plans to study music about how a lot of the Christian music you enjoy you don't necessarily love the theology behind it and yeah. how you want to kind of uh, infuse theology that's well thought out and that you, mm -hmm. uh, that you can get behind into mm -hmm. that music. So I'm wondering, what have you learned at St. Luke's about faith that, that pushes you towards kind of doing that? So, um, you know, St. Luke's is a very, very accepting um, church. You know, wherever you come from, wherever you're, you're going, um, we accept all of it. Um, and that's been a big thing for me. 
because a lot of Christianity in, uh, not, not necessarily the modern world, as Christianity has flowed through, it's very uh, rigid almost sometimes. You know, there's a set path through this. You, you go through Christ, you go through the Bible. Um, and St. Luke's has offered uh, to help me learn that it's not necessarily so rigid. Um, your faith journey is how you shape it and how you let it. Um, you know, you can take all these things into account. You can take the Bible. You can, you can read your devotions, right? You can bring it all in. But the utmost way that it's your journey is you and unique is just letting it go, letting it happen. Um, um, I've really realized through St. Luke's that God is really is, is that space between us, right? Mm-hmm. It's inside, it's also between us. Um, community. Um, we're so we're so big on discipleship and kingdom, and I've always kind of been like, oh yeah, 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 lots of people, Orlando, cool, 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 right? But you don't really understand it fully for me until you're there mm-hmm. and you're at those events and you're with you're with people and you realize I'm not worrying about anything else. There's nothing. There's nothing else that that could that could cease what's going on, and and that to me that that's God. Um, that's that's faith because I've struggled with okay, where's my sign of God? Where, where is my dove in the sky and all that, um, you know? Um, but St. Luke's has offered me, and that community has offered me that it's, it's, not, a, it's not necessarily a sign. It, it, it's, it's me shaking hands with you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's worship. It's being up here mm-hmm. on the stage, just playing guitar. It's, it's looking out and seeing someone being moved by the message. Um, and St. Luke's has really taught me the, that, that faith and worship and, and community is what God is in that, that connection is sort of for me. That's what St. Luke's has taught me so much. So a lot of the things that you're talking about are very central to your experience with this congregation. What are the, what are the elements of faith that you're gonna take into another context with you? Um, <laughs> what, what is the discipline, the practice, the, what, what about you are you taking in the midst of that? I'm, I'm really big on worship and that may be because I like playing guitar and I like <laughs> and I like playing instruments, you know, and I sing a little bit when they ask me to. Um, so I'm a big worship person, right? Um, and and I'm, I'm really big on how, how music and, and worship is an experience and not necessarily a rhythm. Um, um, and I, and I, and I, and that connection, that moment, right, that I, that I necessarily feel when I'm in worship, right, is something that I hope that everybody can experience in their own personal way. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean everybody, let's go play music or let's go, you need to be on stage or something. But uh, for me, when, when I'm in that moment, that worship, that's something that I, I hope that other people can can experience themselves. And But it's unique, you know. You know, you can't, I can't give the same thing to everybody. I can't, I can't. Like I said, I can't replicate it for everybody because it's unique, but I hope that I can sort of bring that idea of, of that, that connection, that experience, rather than, than the rigid uh, rhythm of something sort um, to people. That's what, that's what I want to carry on somewhat. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of getting into some of this of, of how you feel with worship and music and things like that. You know, our text this week from the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus reminding people of the bigger picture like mm-hmm. don't don't worry about things like look how look how god cares for us all look mm-hmm. how god cares for nature look how you know worrying isn't going to to add a single moment mm-hmm. to our lives mm-hmm. and 
I will say we as pastors constantly worry about how we are crafting worship and how we are setting up discipleship opportunities and how we are supporting youth ministers and youth and, and everybody. Um, what are we worrying about too much? Mm. Hmm. So I recently went to uh, a Hillsong United and Chris Tallman concert. Really cool. You know, these are two really big worship bands. Um, but this, this guy came out on stage and kind of had this whole thing where he was really preaching. Um, There's all these people out there who don't know about Jesus, and we need to give them Jesus. We need to give them the Bible. We need to give them this. We need to we need to force it. I got I got scared. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Some people know Jesus. They know who Jesus is, right? Mm-hmm. They know what God is, but that that isn't necessarily what. That's just not their vibe, I guess. That's a, a new term. That's not their vibe. It's not how they want to go on their faith journey. Um, because to me, you, the best way uh, to, to open someone to faith is, is to offer the hand. And if, and if they want it, they will accept their hand too. They'll take your hand almost, right? Mm-hmm. right? You, can't, you can't drag them. You can't, you can't, you can't you know, force them into it. Because then it's just, it just doesn't, it's not, it's not real almost. You know? It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you're running through the actions. Mm-hmm which some people feel. Um, so to me, I feel, I feel sometimes we stress too much on really pulling people, pulling people, mm-hmm. whereas how can, how can we offer our hand and what can we do for you? Um, mm-hmm. I, think there's, I think there's also a lot of emphasis on, on kids and teens and their faith journey, right? And it's very important, you know? I think that, that faith isn't something that needs to be what a teen is centered around, but something that can really influence them well somewhat. It's something that I'm, um, that can be a backbone. For me, it is a backbone. It is the most consistent part of my life, um, my faith and my church, which I'm so grateful for, especially as a high schooler who's you know, battling getting community service and doing my clubs and graduating and all that such, right? But my, my, my consistency is faith. And um, so I think emphasis on, on teens and kids and their faith journey is, is important. Um, but how 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 we do it somewhat sometimes can be a little a little a little tricky and I get I get a little critical of them sometimes I'm sorry um, Go for it. <laughs> um, but I think that um, for 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 kids we we try really hard to personalize it to them rather than how can we let the faith journey go and how can they almost craft it themselves mm. um, how how can they because that teaches teaches people okay. Faith isn't something that I need to line up with. Faith lines up with me. Um, how 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 can this journey be me rather than what something else someone else is trying to produce out of me? Um, so I I think that you know kind of letting it be molded by students, which can be tricky because you know kids say, oh yeah, let's play more games or blah 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 or you know, but kind of letting them be in the space and in the journey and kind of observing how. They interact somewhat because I think ac- actions always speak louder than words, um, and I think sort of viewing how how kids act and interact and what's positive and what's negative for me is how is the best way to kind of personalize relation, uh, the relationship in worship yeah. and uh, and their connection with God. One of the most powerful experiences for me that shaped me when I was about your age was that we actually came to our youth minister and and actually one of one of our most obnoxious youth actually was the one who spoke up first and said, we don't like what we're doing at youth group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we luckily had a youth minister who looked at it and said, okay, 
what do you want to do? Yeah. Mm. And out of that grew this worship service that happened every week that our whole church came to. Mm-hmm. That was led by youth, still mm-hmm. is to this day. That was in 2001. Mm-hmm. And is there's still a, a Wednesday night worship service that mm-hmm. is led, planned and led by youth that started because somebody goes, hey, I don't like this. And someone gave them the space to go, mm-hmm. all right, so let's yeah. create something new. So I, I definitely resonate with the, the mm-hmm. power that can be. Our um, text for this week also talks about how different elements of nature doesn't have to, don't have to worry about today or tomorrow because God takes care of them, mm-hmm. right? And it's this, it's this passage that focuses on reliance on God and faith in God, right? And thinking about you being about to leave home for the first time, mm-hmm. be on your own for the first time, uh, your world is about to expand. What are you? What are you? What are you worried about? And how are you keeping those things in perspective? And how are you leaning on God to help you navigate this thing? Man, I'm so sorry. I was going to ask that question because I've known you for so long. (laughs) And you have been the most adult warrior of any child (laughs) I have ever met. To the point where you have taught us adults what to worry about. I mean, I've appreciated it. I don't say that as a negative criticism. So I'm looking forward to you answering this question. I mean, I get get the uh, some of the... Youth adult volunteers start calling me Papa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you act like an old man, 87-year-old man. Sometimes. I love it. I've heard it said you're 83, actually. Yeah, like, I'm I'm a, yeah, don't age yourself too quickly. 83 <laughs> is probably 83 it. is a little better. Okay. Just tell me yeah. what the people say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, I've moved a couple times. You know, as a pastor's kid, you kind of, you know, wherever the church decides you to go, you go. Or the conference, sorry. Um, but I've been at St. Luke's for 10 years now. Um, and this is my home. Um, you know, I grew up, I was born in South Florida. I've lived in Tampa. I've lived in Georgia. But this is my home. This is, like I said, it's my biggest consistency. Um, and for me, leaving that, it hasn't hit me as hard as I know it's going to hit me yet when I move two states away in Tennessee. Um, but I'm starting to kind of realize, whoa, this is, this is big. Um, um, what am I going to do? Because one, one thing that I mentor... Um, even even remind me of today is that no matter where I go, I'm not going to get St. Luke's again. I'm not going to, you can't perfectly replicate this because it, it's so special. And I'm sure everybody would agree with me that um, that this place is, is so unique. Um, and I'm not going to be able to find that exactly in Nashville, which worries me because because of how much I value my faith and, and church and worship. You know, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to become? Um, but... Like you said, I can't worry about that. I worry about a lot of things. I'm, I have anxiety. I, I worry about things. Um, it just happens. Um, but I try not to worry about my faith journey in that sense because I know that God's going to work in me and through me. Especially since I'm going to a school that is a Christian, a Christian university with, with a community that I know is, is accepting of us, of all of us, for our musical talents and who we are, and, and it builds upon that and creating worship services and such. Um, so I, I try not to worry. I might a little bit, you know, where am I going to go to church on Sunday? Um, but that for me, worrying about, about, about my journey and about, about God in that moment and in those moments and, and leaving, uh, I try not to worry about it because I know that I'm still going to be, I'm still going to be latent. I'm still going to be a, try, be a Christian somewhat and I'm, and, and I'm going to live by that. Yeah. Because, you know, being a Christian and, and being, and being a disciple is more than is more than necessarily the building. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's more it's 
I mean, the people are a big part, but it's more than people somewhat, you know. It's, it's how, you, how you lead your life, how you, how you live your life. Um, and so, as I've, as I've matured and grown up and started to get older, um, how can I, how do I live my life? How do I lead my life? Because I, you know, you go through emotions as a kid, you go, people guide you and they mold you and your parents tell you what to do and not to go out then and do your homework and, but as you get older, you know, you start to learn, okay, I have to manage that myself. And so, especially with the pandemic, a lot of time by myself, a lot of thinking, a lot of self-reflection, how can I, how can I use faith? How can I self-interpret that and self-influence myself through that? So that when I go out and I don't see my parents or my home church every week, that I can still be sort of faithful to, to, to God and to myself. And how can I, um, uh, uh, how can I continue that? So, um, that's why we talk about core values so much, yeah. right? Is yeah. that yeah, right. St. Luke's is a place and an experience and buildings and worship services and ministries. Um, but it's that, you know, what what's so special? What is it? it it's undergirded with those values. And mm-hmm. so my hope for you is that, that, as you said sort of at the beginning of talking about what you were taking with you of of being able to go, oh, I'm, I know I'm not going to get St. Luke's. I don't need to get St. Luke's, but I'm going to be looking for those same values, mm. yeah, and and to be able to recognize that it's not the it's not the mm-hmm. the shell. It's it's yeah. the it's what undergirds it. Because you can get churches that look very different from us oh, yeah. that do not have <laughs> yeah. lights and all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that have exactly the same values we have yeah, and right. and live that out in a different way. Mm-hmm. But but to find those values is going to be. Well, and it's cool, Leighton, because, like, the fact that you're talking about what you're not worried about yeah. is is your faith and who you are yeah. and how you're going to lead your life and how you lead your life through that. I mean, those are the things, Leighton, that, you know, a lot of us at, you know, 51 or 60 are just figuring out mm-hmm. is that, oh, this is my life to lead and it's my faith that's going to do it. And so... In so many ways, it goes back to, you know, what Jesus is trying to say is get back to exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is like, get back to leading your life according to these things. Mm-hmm. And the other things don't matter as mm-hmm. much. Those other things will happen as they happen. And mm-hmm. so in some ways, what you just expressed is an encapsulation of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it truly is. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're recognizing, you know, we have adults here at St. Luke's who have like, I don't like that term lead your life. You keep telling us to lead your life and that just seems I'm not a I'm not a leader, but the fact that you at 18 are ready to go out into the world and say, I'm gonna lead my life mm-hmm. with this is exactly the the gumption <laughs> I think Jesus is calling yeah. us to. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's really cool that you get mm-hmm. it um, and that you're teaching mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fact, in many, really many cool. ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is really cool. But I, and, I'm, and what I'm about to say is really uncool. I think that there are so many parents who would break into a Pentecostal shout if they heard <laughs> their senior about to graduate say one of the biggest concerns is where they're going to go to church mm-hmm. when they graduate from college. And yeah. it, I mean, it's, it's just good to hear, though. I mean, yes, as one of your pastors and uh, a family friend, but also uh, hearing you talk about what faith means to you and hearing t- you talk about how it's a backbone for you, you said, and a, and a foundation. And so it's good to hear that you're thinking about what you need as a person to be stable and successful in a new space. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to see 
you know, so much of this series that we're talking about, we are talking about people who have had to deconstruct unhealthy faith and ways that they have, have had negative experiences of church. And I, I can't wait to see how you get to be in ministry with your peers mm -hmm. who, need, who need someone who can just sit and listen with mm -hmm. them that way. Yeah, mm -hmm. The way that you've had that model of, of being given space that you're talking yeah. about. I, mm -hmm. I think there's something that you're going to be able to offer peers who are coming out of very different scenarios mm -hmm. too. It, it's something that's something big to me, you know, finding those core values is, is very important. And but also how can I bring the core values mm -hmm. onto people? Because a lot of a lot of kids, um, they're not as fortunate as a, as I've been with with the with the community that I have at St. Luke's. Yeah. Um, um, there's a lot of kids, yeah, they just don't have that. And 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 it's not necessarily that they need that. Um, it's not, not not that they need Christianity, but sometimes kids they need someone to listen, like you said. Mm -hmm. They 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 just need someone to be there. And how how can I how can I do that? How can I bring the core values? How can I show that that my relationship with Christ is more than me going to church, is is more than me playing on stage mm -hmm. and playing guitar? How is it how is it how is it listening? How is it being there? How is it that community? How 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 is what what we're doing on campus? How is our, our social events? How how is God there, you know, and, and, and how, how can I be there um, as a disciple? And, and that, that's important to me because I've been changed so much, um, and I'm going to change a lot more. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through a lot of change. Yep. I know I will. Um, mm -hmm. But I want, I would hope that I can not necessarily change people, but, but not, not influence either, but... but uh, yeah, oh, okay. Definitely. guide, but like guide and help people because... I want. I, I hope people will become open and accepting to the same things that I have been. Your as well. concern over words like influence or why you're going to be fine. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. You you know you aren't going to ever impose something upon someone mm -hmm. else, which is why you are the perfect guide to walk alongside them. Mm -hmm. So yes, you will influence people, hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I have a question. I have two. It's a two-parter. First of all, what are you most looking forward to as you as you go for it? Ooh. Um, I'll tell you what. And only, you know, thousand, couple thousand people are listening, so don't worry about it. We <laughs> <laughs> won't tell on you. Um, so I am paying for a private education, which mm -hmm. means that um, I'm going to expect a lot then because I'm not going to public universities, which sometimes does not give as much. Uh, Belmont's very attentive to student services. Um, so I look forward a lot to that. But I also look forward to the fact that, like, I'm going to a school where people are kind of like me and want to like make music creatively and want to learn and are open to that and are willing to work for that. Um, because yeah, I've, I've grown up in, in a very creative environment and I go to a, a school with a magnet. I go to Dr. Phillips High School with a, with a great magnet, mm -hmm. but, but I'm gonna be going to a university that where kids really strive for that. Like I look so, I look forward so much to like being able to hear what people have to offer what can you play? Like, what what chord is that? What note is that? How or how did you tweak that plugin? Or 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 how did your band do that? You know. And I look forward to how those creative as, as, aspects and aspirations come in. And how can I how can I offer what I can? How can I bring those things together? Um, I find that so many times people have these creative ideas that they diminish or like, oh, it's not good enough, or or I'm not ready to put it out, or um, it needs this and this and that. And, and sometimes I see and I go, well, maybe it needs this. Or maybe, maybe I can help you with that. Or maybe what someone else is doing and what you're doing can come together. How can that you know, be together as a project or someone? Um, so I, I really like 
working with people's creative outputs, and, and I look forward to, to doing a lot of that uh, in college. That was so much deeper than I expected. I expected, like, I can stay out as late as I want. <laughs> but I don't know why I would expect no. anything he's, he's less than I know he that's is. That's Nashville and Murphy's He's ready to go. So my question yeah. then is, what do you think was the highlight of being your 10 years? I mean, you've gotten mm. to do theater and worship. You've done some really cool stuff with the youth group mm. and um, the missing voices. And what, do, what are you going to miss the most? Ooh. What am I miss the most? Um, what was your favorite part? Favorite I part? Too. Um, yeah, I've, do, I've done a lot, and there's been a lot of fun times. I mean, the lock-ins, the mission trips. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's been a lot of fun. Sunday mornings, there's little moments that I really enjoyed. But I, I think that and it, what it really hit me is, is, is this, this Easter this year of getting back, that community of... Mm-hmm. of I worked really hard to get that music down, and everybody else did too. Um, there's all these singers and, and all these instrumentalists and all these people behind the scenes and y'all, and and getting to see us all put all that work together and 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 that that creative output and seeing it all come together, and and, and getting to sit there and, and see my family, and see my church my church family and, and and see my dad and and all of you and and having that all come together and that that service to me was an accumulation. Of that, that's my favorite part, is is that moment of of everything coming together and that just, that that creativity. Um, I can't replicate what I feel when I play, when when it's when it's such a truly just great moment. I can't replicate that. I can only look forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only I can only experience it. Um, um, every moment's different, but I'd hope that it's all unified under worship and a connection to God. In community, um, and that's what I want to bring with me as I as I go out. Is is how can I bring that experience out to other people? Because it's very unique and it's special to me, and I think it could be special to other people. Um, so that that's my favorite part. Is is I think that that Easter really accumulated that that moment for me. That's awesome. That's nice. awesome. As we all look, Leighton, you need to close us out. <laughs> you opened us up so well. Yeah, close us out there, buddy. Okay. Um, what's your What's your last final message to St. Luke's? My last final message to St. Luke's. Because we'll um, never see you ever again. Ever <laughs> again. I'm never coming back. You, you are, are going straight to camp, though, right? After I, graduation, yes, right? I am. I, I, yes, I'm going to be a camp counselor there. Um, mm-hmm. I really look forward to that and working with the kids. That place is very special to me and my family. Um, so it was something I didn't even think I was going to do. I finished the application basically the night before because um, I <laughs> didn't think I'd be doing it. But I'm so grateful for the opportunity that I'm getting to go do that. So um, I guess my final, final somewhat message would be uh, thank you, um, mm. St. Luke's. You've given me a space, an opportunity to be me and to grow. Um, you know, I can go through the motions. I can go to Sunday as much as I want. Um, and it's someone kind of used to be like that. Oh, I'm going to church at 8 a.m. with my dad because he's going to go preach a sermon. But it's it's grown into so much of mm-hmm. I can become me and I can grow in that. Um, and so I guess my message is just is, is thank you. So um, thank you, St. Luke's, also for listening in and watching your week with St. <laughs> Luke's. I'm Leighton Denmark, and these are the pastors. So uh, I hope you all have a nice week. <laughs>